Today's lesson is from the book of Luke, chapter 18, verses 1 to 8. Then Jesus told them a parable about their need to pray always and not to lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor had respect for people. In that city there was a widow who kept coming to him and saying, Grant me justice against my opponent. For a while he refused. He said to himself, Though I have no fear of God and no respect for anyone, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will grant her justice so that she may not wear me out by continually coming. And the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says, and will not God grant justice to his chosen ones who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long and keep helping them? I tell you, he will quickly grant justice to them, and yet when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, thank you, Jan, so much for reading our lesson today. Uh, I want to say a word of thanks to Laura and Toy for leading us. Uh, Toy, for your prayer. I think that Toy is on a first-name basis with Jesus. I always feel that when she prays, don't you? And we're grateful to her and to Elizabeth. That was remarkable, the music this morning from this ensemble, just remarkable. And so we're so grateful for those in person and those who are streaming to be able to worship together like this means a great deal to us and Patsy, James, Greg, and all who are assisting. We're so grateful to you. Uh, We are now officially on the back nine of our series. We're beginning the second half of our series that we started about five weeks ago on prayer, teach us to pray. And Jan has read for us a parable from Luke chapter 18, which if you know that chapter, it's one of two parables that Jesus tells to his disciples concerning prayer. Both of those parables, by the way, are peculiar to Luke's gospel. In other words, you don't find these two parables uh, in Matthew, Mark, John. They are exclusive to Luke's gospel. And by now you know that we've spent the entire series in Luke's gospel because Luke, Dr. Luke, more than any other gospel writer, seems to accent and emphasize the practice of prayer as our primary means of grace. It reminds me of Mr. Wesley. John Wesley believed that there were three primary means of grace available to people of faith. One was Holy Communion, the other is Bible reading, And the third, of course, is the communion of prayer. It's interesting in the reading, I don't know if you noticed this or not, but in Luke's reading, uh, the story begins with Luke doing kind of an editorial of noting the purpose of the parable. Why did Jesus tell this story at this point in his ministry? You see it in verse 1. And then Jesus told a parable about their need, whose need? The disciples' need to always pray, to be consistent, persistent in prayer so that they would never lose heart. So that verse, pay, uh, pay special attention to it, sort of telegraphs the context of the teaching. At this point, some of the followers of Jesus have become discouraged. Some are down in the dumps. Some are are sort of in the doldrums. They're, They're dejected and discouraged because of their situation. 
One of the things that we all know, and I'm preaching to the choir, of course, now, is if you've ever tried to be a disciple of Jesus for more than about three weeks, you know that the path of discipleship does not take detours from discouragement, right? It doesn't. And Lord knows, over these last five months, we have had our fair share of discouragement. In fact, it occurred to me the other day that the next time we have a global pandemic, it would be nice not to do it during an election year. I don't know if you feel that way. I'm just saying it would be nice not to do another one during an election year. With a tornado, the pandemic, the political divide, the racial tension, it is a context in which we're living that can be discouraging. And that was the context for this parable. In fact, to prove it, if you go back one chapter to chapter 17, someone came up to Jesus and asked him a question. Here's the question. Teacher, when will the kingdom come? Now, whenever a person says that, what it usually means is, Lord, how long? (laughs) How long? You see that phrase in, in the Psalms over and over again, in the midst of discouragement, in a context of disillusionment, Lord, how long must we endure this trial? And Jesus gives a very strange reply. He says to him, the kingdom is among you. The question is, when will the kingdom come? They're thinking futuristic, and for sure it will come in fullness in the future. Jesus taught that. But Jesus' answer is, the kingdom is already here among you. In other words, the kingdom is not confined or restricted by time and space. Toy, I thought about it while you were praying. You prayed this. When a hungry person is fed, the kingdom is come. When a thirsty stranger receives a cup of water, the kingdom is at hand. When good news is preached to the poor, the kingdom has come. When captives are released, when blind people start to see things they haven't seen, when deaf people have open ears, when lame people start walking and the oppressed go free, the kingdom is come. And yet not completely but we get a glimpse. I think there's a reason that when Jesus taught us to pray, he taught us specifically to pray this line, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth, just as it is in heaven. What he means is it's possible to live the life that is to come in the here and now. That it's possible to live the life that I promised God I'm going to live tomorrow, today. That's possible by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit because when Jesus walks on this earth, the kingdom is near. Now, at the time that Luke wrote his gospel, it must have been 70, 80 AD, somewhere around that. The church, the early church, was in its second or third generation. And frankly, some were beginning to wonder, years after the ascension of Jesus, is he coming back? Things were difficult. The struggle was real. Persecution was on the rise. There was division, discord, and schism between the church and the synagogue. And some were losing heart. It happens. 
I want to confess something to you, and I'm not implicitly saying this about you. I'm confessing this about me. I have noticed in my walk with Jesus that there is a correlation between my prayer life and my attitude. Now, that's probably not true for you, but I've noticed that in me, that when I'm in close communion with God, when my prayer life is in the zone, my outlook is optimistic. But on the contrary, when I begin to get out of touch with God, when the radio dial isn't right on the station, I tend to get a little more negative, a little pessimistic. Now, that's probably nothing to do with you, but that's me. I was reading in Time Magazine the other day, they put out a special edition uh, on the science of happiness. It's fascinating. If you haven't picked it up, it's a good read. In the special edition, they have cited a survey that comes from the University of Chicago that reveals people who pray and worship regularly, whether that's in person or streaming, regularly tend to be more joyful than those who do not. What's interesting is the study also revealed that the joy factor goes down for those who worship irregularly once a month, or it declines deeply for those who seldom, if ever, engage in any spiritual practice. They also cited, and this was fascinating to me, the addition also cited a vocational survey of those who are the least joyful in their occupation to those who are the most joyful. They did a vocational scale. This will be a surprise to some of you, but the least joyful, and I say this not in a judgmental way, but in a prayerful way, the least joyful occupation, service station attendance. So we ought to be kind to them. The least joyful, roofers, I get that. Construction workers and amusement park attendance. Now, that's a surprise. I would have thought that operating the roller coaster at Disney World would have been a great thing, but not so. And then on the other side, the most joyful, vocationally speaking, you know who they are? Pilots, actors, directors, architects, firefighters, and guess who made the top of the list? Clergy. Clergy, preachers. Now, to be sure, Toy and Laura, the truth is I've met some unhappy preachers, and that's not a good thing. By and large, I've discovered that we're a pretty joyful group, and why not? I mean, who wouldn't be when your job description includes the privilege of proclaiming a risen Lord? At the very least, what should be said of the clergy is that there's joy. The thing that surprised me the most in this article is the age group, they said, that tends to be the most joyful. You know what it is? 65 plus. Really? With all those aches and pains? 65 plus. And the article didn't say it, but I'm saying it. I'm guessing that's because in that age bracket, life is less about doing and more about being. The most joyful people that I meet week to week are named Grandpa and Mamma and Nanny and Grandmother. 
joy. It's not just about doing, it's about being. But discouragement happens. Whether it's clergy, whether it's pastors, discouragement happens. It's a part of the context. It's a part of our context. It's a part of the pathway of faith. And so Jesus tells this parable about our need to always pray in order that we not lose heart. Now to the text. Uh, Some of you have been waiting. Now we're going to get to the text. There are two characters in this story that Jan read for us. The first is a judge. He's described in a very unflattering way with two descriptions. He has no fear of God, and he doesn't give a flip about people. Now, I, I don't know about you, but to me, that is a lethal mix for a jurist. You remember our series on Proverbs last year? We preached 10 weeks on Proverbs. Wise up is the name of it. And the thesis verse for the whole series was Proverbs 1 verse 7, which says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So wisdom originates from reverence for God. But this guy, this judge, no fear of God. No reverence, no awe of God. So not only is he unjust, he's unwise. And worst of all, he's unsympathetic. He's indifferent. He's an apathetic atheist. Now, I have to tell you, if I had been tried in that day, if I had found myself in his courtroom, I would have prayed to God that this guy was not on the bench when my case came up. He's bad news. Now, there's another part of me, because maybe it's the psychologist in me that wants to appeal for the judge. Maybe in his defense, maybe he had had enough. Maybe he had seen too much. If you've ever been in a courtroom, can you imagine all the misdeeds? Can you imagine all the malice and the meanness that this man saw? All the the rationalizing and justifying and buck passing that he had seen in his courtroom. Maybe his vocation kidnapped his joy and led him to a place that some of us have been before where we become a skeptic, where we just get cynical about life, it happens. H.L. Mencken, the American essayist of another generation, said it like this, a cynic is a man who when he smells flowers, looks around for a coffin. That's a cynic. Henry Ward Beecher, the great congregationalist preacher said, and I quote, the cynic is one who never sees a good quality in a person and never fails to see a bad one. Says Beecher, the cynic is a human owl, vigilant in darkness and blind to light, mousing for vermin and never seeing noble game. Cynicism. The other character besides the judge is a widow. Now I want to explain something about widows. In Israel, in ancient Israel, As in every patriarchal, agriculturally-based economy, there were entire classes of people who were especially vulnerable, namely orphans, sojourners, or aliens, and widows. In ancient Israel, when a husband died, the estate did not go to the wife. 
The estate went to the sons or the brothers of the deceased. And she would be at the mercy of the in-laws. Can you imagine that? Some of the most devious behavior that I've ever seen happens after the funeral, after the eulogy is read, when the will is read. That's when the vultures usually show up, after death. So any God-fearing judge, any Jewish judge, would have felt obligated by the Torah to take care of this woman. I mean, it's interesting. It's right there in Deuteronomy 24, 17. You shall not prevent the justice due to the sojourner, to the fatherless, or to the widow. In fact, if you look ahead in Deuteronomy 27, verse 19, there's actually a curse there. Cursed is he who prevents the justice due to the alien, the orphan, the widow. If you look in the New Testament, you'll discover it's also a part of the Judeo-Christian lineage to take care of the widow. James 1.27, the brother of Jesus, James said, religion that is pure and blameless before God is to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. But this guy, this judge, he's not listening. He refuses her case. He denies her plea. But what's interesting to me is his resistance doesn't hinder her. To the contrary, it fuels the fire. She keeps coming. She won't be denied. She doesn't wait for an appointment. She won't take no for an answer. In fact, there's an old Yiddish word for this woman, chutzpah. You know that word? Chutzpah. It means she's audacious. It means you can't get rid of her. She's shameless. And listen to what she says. Grant me justice my, uh, against my opponent. Grant me, vindicate me against my enemy. What's she doing? She's protesting. The judge has all the power. This is civil unrest at this point, and it's pretty effective. I mean, watch, she doesn't burn down the courthouse. She doesn't threaten bodily harm. She doesn't threaten violence because that would sabotage justice. We've learned the hard way that injustice plus injustice does not equal justice. But she keeps coming. She has no position. She has no office. She has no status. She has no power. She only has a voice. And she knows how to use it for justice sake. When I think about voices of justice, I think about John Lewis. I was 31 years in Atlanta. John Lewis, congressman, 5th district in Atlanta, died recently. Many of you know. He was a man of deep faith. He was raised to believe in God. They called him preacher as a boy because he used to preach to the chickens. In fact, he said he'd had some conversions a time or two. They thought he would be a preacher, but that was not his platform. The pulpit was not his platform. He became a civil rights activist who at a young adult age in Selma on a march was beaten by authorities and left with a fractured skull. 
that, that probably would have done it for me, but not him. He didn't stop. He kept going. A congressman from 1987 until his death in 2020, he has been called the conscience of the Congress. He believed in prayer, and his prayer became peaceful protest. And it was pretty effective. When the recent protests in Atlanta last June turned violent, John Lewis wrote an article. The Associated Press covered it. I want to read you an excerpt of what he said. To the rioters here in Atlanta and across the country, I see you and I hear you. I know your pain, I know your rage, your sense of despair and hopelessness. Justice has been denied for far too long. But violence, rioting, looting, and burning, it is not our way. Organize, demonstrate, sit in, stand up, vote, be constructive, yes, not destructive, for history has proven again and again and again, said Mr. Lewis, that nonviolent, peaceful protest is the way to achieve the justice and equality that we all deserve. It's the Jesus way. It's the prophet's way. It's the widow's way. The truth of the matter is that woman's protest was a prayer. Walter Wink, the biblical scholar, and I thought about it while Toy was praying because this is the way you pray. Walter Wink said, biblical prayer is impertinent. It's persistent. It's shameless. It's indecorous. Biblical prayer, he said, is more like haggling at an outdoor bazaar than the polite monologues that we hear in the church. And that's right. In the end of the story, Luke does something that is so Luke. (laughs) This is just so Luke. At the end of the story, you know what he does? He gives us a window into the judge's heart so that we become privy to his inner thoughts, to his monologue or soliloquy. He does this in other stories like the prodigal son. He he reveals what that boy was thinking when he was in the pig pen. He does so in the next parable we're gonna talk about next week, the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. We see in their hearts, this is what Luke does for us because isn't it true that it is what we say when the mic is off that is really who we are. The judge says to himself in this soliloquy, self, your honor, it's true I have no respect for God nor any compassion for people. Yet on account of the fact that this widow keeps pestering me, keeps bugging me and nagging me, I'm going to give her justice. Otherwise, she's going to wear me out. In fact, the closest to the Greek translation is she's going to give me a black eye. What he means is she's going to ruin my already bad reputation. And that's the end of the story. It's, It's over right there. But then Jesus drives home the point. What's the point? Here it is. If an unjust, unwise, 
uncaring magistrate will cave in to the unrelenting protest of a pesky widow, will not God who made us in his image and redeemed us by his blood, will he not gladly and willingly grant justice to his beloved children who cry out to him in prayer? Will God forever delay in helping us? End of story. That's the rhetorical question, and we know the answer. God will not long delay. God is the architect of justice and mercy. But it's the very last verse that haunts me, that convicts me. The very last verse, Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? I don't know what it is lately, but I hear people sometimes, I overhear us talking about God as though God's on trial. But he's not. I am. You are. We are. The question is not, will we find God faithful? The question is, as he comes, will God find justice and mercy in me? Will he find faith in you? Will those who pray thy kingdom come, will we live it here, now? That's the question. It keeps me up at night and on my toes in the day. Last word. While I was away, Sherry and I were away, we took time to do some reading and one of the books that I read that I think is a must read was written by a historian who lives here in Nashville. His name is John Meacham. I think he guest teaches sometimes at Vanderbilt. He's written a book, Pulitzer Prize winner, called The Soul of America. The subtitle is The Battle for Our Better Angels. And of course, the better angels phrase comes from President Lincoln. In the book, Meacham shares an old quote from the 26th president of the United States, Teddy Roosevelt. Many of you have heard it. In a speech that he made one year after he left the office, he was president 1901 to 1909. The year after he left the office, he made a speech that is the, the best known speech he ever made in which he shared these words with which I close. It is not the critic who counts it is not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done better. The credit belongs to the one who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes up short again and again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming but the one who does actually strive to do the deeds, the one who knows great enthusiasms and the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of human achievement, and who at the worst, even if he fails, 
at least he fails while daring greatly so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither knew victory or defeat. The question is, will God find faith in me? In you, not, not in your neighbor, not in your opponent, not in your enemy, but in you, in me. That's the question. And I believe that that question will keep us busy until he comes in fullness. But until then, newsflash, the kingdom is among you. So live like it. In Jesus' name.